Woodstock or something? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't call it Woodstock, but it's uh, it's it's definitely a good time for anybody who wants to either learn to play this music or already knows how to play and is looking for people to do it with for a week. So people can just come or you have to sign up? You have to be part of the group? You have to be enrolled? No, you have to sign up in advance, but people are welcome to walk through the campus and just check out all the jamming in the evening in particular. Yeah, so on the Smith campus, we can just go and hear these instruments, 200 and, I don't know, about 250 people, some of whom played together before, some of whom haven't, and they're jamming all over the campus for a week? P pretty much, yeah. That's so cool. Okay, tell us about the performances at the Academy of Music, because if you're listening to the show and you haven't been to one of these performances, you have got to do yourself a favor and go. These performances are amazing. So tell us about the performances, if you would, please, Andrew. Friday and Saturday, the 16th and 17th, that's this weekend. Each night features two groups. We don't always know exactly who's going to show up because we have so much talent on, 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 on hand. They might say they might just invite somebody to come play. But some of the performers that the performers who are here in the studio will be performing uh, or on one or both of those evenings. Okay, so we have with us in the studio Edward Penn. Edward, so how do, how do you happen to be in Northampton, Massachusetts, and where are you from? Uh, I'm from uh, Paris, and uh, I'm here to uh, give some uh, bass, double bass lesson to the American Gypsy Jazz community. And you have a bass, a stand-up bass with you in the studio today. Exactly, yes. Uh, we, which, of course, we have plenty of room for. really appreciate <laughs> it. Um, uh, and how, how, have you been to here to uh, Django and June in Northampton before? Uh, yeah, I think I went in uh, 2015 or something like this. Playing guitar, actually, yeah. Well, <laughs> Funny well, story. Well, welcome back. Let me ask Jules Dussoff the same question for you. H how do you happen to be in Northampton, Massachusetts? D is this a big festival in the world of Django jazz? Yeah, it's a very known festival in, uh, in the world of Django, Django jazz. And for me, it's the first time, being, first time being here. I'm so excited to play here and meet all the people who are passionate about this music. This music. Why don't you guys take, take that microphone, oh. okay? Yeah, maybe Thanks. it's better. It's better, like better yeah. yeah. So tell us what you were just saying. Yeah. Uh, so for me, it's the first time here in Northampton, and I'm very excited about playing this music and meet all the people who are passionate about Django Reinhardt and this gypsy music. How long have you been playing? Do uh, uh, you call it a fiddle? A, a, uh, well, the violin. The violin. Uh, well, I, I began when I was really young, as, but I did a lot of classical studies, and then I began gypsy just like five, six years ago. And that your training is classical? Yeah, as a violinist? and I, I'm still playing as a classical violinist and as a gypsy jazz violinist. Well, welcome, to, welcome back and welcome to Northampton. <laughs> Thank Hampton. you. Uh, let me ask uh, Romain William Mean. You're also from Paris? Yes, exactly. Born in uh, East of France, where there's a huge uh, gypsy community. And then I learned the drum in the gypsy camp and I went to Paris in the early 2010 to, uh, to meet with the, the gypsy dream. And when you say a gypsy community, what do you mean? It's uh, they have a lot of uh, uh, gypsy gypsy people. The Manouche, uh, they are they they have a, a way of life that is more nomad rather than sedentary. And then they would travel across France in caravans. And they would establish with their community travel and uh, always bring their culture. And they they play this uh, this genre because Django Reinhardt is their their god. It was uh, the one that made 
that community shined the most, uh, especially when this community was uh, had a lot of segregation and uh, was really uh, uh, apart from from the other communities. So theoretically, saying yeah, I'm a manouche in France was pretty bad, and when it comes to music, uh, was was pretty good. So uh, it's their hero. And the community, a gypsy community, still exists in France. It still exists. It's just moving uh, through the years with technology, and they, they tend to be more sedentarized than before. But they still keep the, the tradition, uh, especially the, the music tradition. Okay. So, Jules, Romain, Edward, you're going to play for us now. What are you going to play? We're going to play uh, one of Django's uh, most uh, famous composition. It is called Nuage. He composed it in Paris in 1940. And do you have a name for your group as this? Uh, as this will we'll be playing, it, it could be kind of the Romain Vimain trio because you guys can hear on the Friday the concert at the Academy of Music of my quartet. And then we still have to figure if it will be with the violin, Jules, or with the clarinet because we sometimes have, have both. So maybe yeah. we'll get both. And we'll we're going to talk about what instruments go into Django Jazz. Let's hear some music first.
members of Generation Django will be performing at the Academy Music Course. You can just wander around the Smith campus and find them as well this week. Tell us how we get tickets, please, Andrew Lawrence, producer of Django in June. Through the Academy uh, of Music box office. Anytime? Through, or go online and we can buy them yeah, online? Yeah, get them online. And, I, and I, you can also get them day of. I think the box office maybe opens at 3. Okay, and the performances are when? Friday and Saturday this week, the 16th and 17th. And what time? 7.30. At the Academy of Music. Indeed. We are going to be right back more with Django in June right after this. We continue covering Django in June, the Gypsy Jazz Festival, now ongoing at the Smith College campus. There will be concerts at the Academy of Music Friday and Saturday, June 16th and 17th. Tickets are available at the Academy of Music box office or at DjangoInJune.com. We have with us in the studio three of the musicians, Jules Dusop and Romain Williamine and Edward, Edward Penn, all from Paris, I think, or at least, yes, all from Paris. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's three nods. We're going to say uh, we to that. Got it. We so, so tell me, uh, let me start with uh, you, Edward. Why and how did you become involved with Gypsy Jazz, with Django? What was, what was the first thing that said, I want to play that? Um, so I, I used to play jazz guitar in Paris, study jazz guitar. I also play like the classical guitar, etc. And then I discovered like, um, I don't know, Birilli, Django Reinhardt, uh, because of, I don't know, my neighbor or something. He used to listen a bunch of jazz. He introduced me to jazz. And then I completely, I don't know, fell in love with the Django music, you know. And then in Paris, it uh, became like a huge community of uh, players. It was like, okay, we play almost every night, you know with a bunch of musicians, like, um, I don't know, back in the days, like 15 years ago or something. Explain this to me. Is most of this music improv over and above some sort of set kinds of patterns, or is most of it already created and you're playing what is a set piece? Oh, that's, uh, I would say that's a mix between both, you know, let's say uh, there is a bunch of code in the music of Django Reinhardt because of Django Reinhardt and because this style is like uh, really special, you know what I mean? This is, that's a branch, special branch of the, of, of the jazz, you know, the jazz guitar playing. So there is a bunch of code, but this is, there is also a bunch of improvisation, you know, and uh, the, the, the music is still moving and still, uh, you know, we always explore stuff, you know. So let me turn to Jules, if I might. What brought you to Django? What made you say, I want to do that? I think it's a combination of a lot of things because in the in Django Reinhardt music, you have a lot of influence about classical music, about early jazz. And I really loved this, this combination of different styles of music and also the, the mood, the mood of the player, the mood of playing together and creating, creating a moment which is, which is always unique. You're a long way from classical violin. Did anyone uh, tell you? <laughs> I think it's not it's not a long way. I think it's it just it's just another way, but you know, when when I'm playing, I'm not thinking about okay, I I'm playing jazz violin or I'm playing classical violin. violin. For me it's just the same thing. It's just playing music and what you, what you hear and what you feel. Let me turn to Romain, Williamine. What is your what is your I guess I want the same question. This is amazing music. This is incredible creativity. What brought you to being a Django artist? 
what to appreciate Django Reinhardt. I wasn't too much into jazz music as a kid because we didn't hear much of it or just big band music, but I wasn't too much into jazz. I was more into Jimi Hendrix music. And then I liked the energy of <laughs> Jimi Hendrix guitar. And then I noticed that I was playing tiny gigs. And then at some point I, I look at myself and I say, boy, we're so pathetic. You know, we play a shitty gig <laughs> with a, a million material with, and, and in the end, It, it doesn't sound good, you know? And we're like, yeah, we're rocksters, and we bring, like, huge amps and stuff, and, and the, the, the sound check is super long. And then I just went to the guitar shop and heard a, a guy playing a gypsy guitar, and it was just a piece of wood, a pick, and I was like, oh, boy, okay, that's no, no artificial stuff there. It's only, like, wood and soul and fingers. And I say, whoa. And the music of Django Reinhardt was somehow... He managed to bring the same energy with an acoustic guitar than, than Jimi Hendrix with the Stratocaster and, and the super loud amps. Wow. What are you going to play for us now? Now, it's a song that... Jimi uh, Hendrix. Uh, <laughs> Hendrix, exactly. That is a song from uh, Harry Archer in the 40s that is called I Love You that will be performing on Saturday with the Generation Django band, Saturday. <laughs> That's what you get at nine in the morning. <laughs> nine at night. Yeah. yeah, I gotta tell you, when we started to have musicians on the show, and my co-host at the time was Monty Belmonte, and he had one word of advice for me, which was, stop inviting musicians at nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That doesn't work. 
one of two things have ha are happening. Either they're coming back from the night before and they're not at their best, or they're just getting up, also not at their best. So nine o'clock in the morning. But you guys are absolutely astounding. And I'll tell you the part that just most moves me in all seriousness is the energy you bring to this and the energy on the stage. <laughs> and and I, I'm interested to know, how do you how do you bring that to the music, or does the music bring it to you? L let me let me start with Eduardo. What's first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> I don't know. This is um, okay. This is part of the style, actually. This is like a happy music, like sharing music, like everybody's smiling all the time. It's like it's all about energy and sharing something, like uh, on the uh, like right now. You know, that's the thing. You know. So it's the same at nine in the morning, later like, uh, at night. You know? <laughs> I appreciate your covering for me. Thank you. Yes, yeah, and I think, Jules. I think also you you take the the energy of the the, the others you you are playing with, and you're giving and you 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 get some energy, and so it's it's just like and it's getting higher and higher. Well, let me ask this, and perhaps I could talk to uh, ask Romain about this. Uh, what I am struck by is the way in which when you're improvising, one player, uh, perhaps the person on the violin, perhaps the person on the bass, perhaps the person on the guitar, makes something up. And then somebody else is sort of in their mind, I guess, or in their fingers. That's amazing. Let me do something else. And then somebody else does something else. And there's this entire new creation all the time, every time. Exactly. It's reacting uh, on, the, on the exact spot where, uh, to what the people are playing so sometimes you, you cannot make it's mainly improvised because you cannot make the, something like okay I, after 20 seconds I'll go into that direction because no uh, somebody the, the guy next to you will do something and oh we all follow him or we all go to different directions that's why you can see any uh, uh, concert they will all always be uh, different well I can't wait Django in June will be performing let's see it's the main uh, Mean Quartet on Friday at, again, 7 o'clock? 7.30. at the Academy of Music. On Saturday, it's Generation Django, 7.30 at the Academy of Music. Uh, sorry, both shows are at 7.30. The Django camp is ongoing this week at Smith College, and we can just go tonight and wander, wander around. And wander listen. around in the evening, see what's going on. So amazing, and I really want to thank Andrew Lawrence for bringing us Django in June. Listeners, if you haven't been to Smith College campus to hear this, do yourself an enormous favor and go, and then go to one of these concerts or both. You will do yourself an enormous favor. These musicians are amazing. The music is extraordinary, and the energy is just out of this world. Thank you all so much, very much, Jules Dossab, Romain Williamine, Edward, Edward Penn, members of Generation Django and Andrew Lawrence, producer of Django in June, thank you for bringing this concert to all of us every year. We are all in your debt. I can't wait to see the show. Thank you all so very much. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. thank you very much. We are moving now from music that was totally out of this world to other things that are out of this world. This segment comes about, and we are joined in the studio by Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid and... We'll introduce him as rational human being most of the time, Josh Silver, a regular on our show. Josh Silver, of course, a political consultant and a, one of the smartest people we know. And this segment came about because Josh sent me this email with some links having to do with uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon. 
saying, look at this. Isn't this interesting? Doesn't this seem kind of real? And I wrote him back an email that, well, we can't reproduce or uh, quote here on the show, uh, and said, but Josh, you seem really interested. You think there's something to this? And he said, well, yeah, look what's here in the New York Times. Read what's in front of us. This, what, what, is the, what is the Department of Defense doing about these? Uh, and what are they hiding and or not? So I sent this on to Salman, and I said, well, maybe we could talk about this. And so here we are. Josh Silver, I want to introduce you again as rational human being, worried about or concerned or at least interested in the potential for extraterrestrials here on Earth. Tell us what got your attention, and then we're going to discuss this in a rational Okay, will do. Uh, good morning, y'all. And uh, first of all, that last segment was incredible. I got a photo of it. Maybe you can put it on the web. I we'll took try, the, photo, yeah. the credit. I want to get the credit. Okay, great. Okay. Um, and then, and then <laughs> credit to Josh Silver, otherwise no, I, I known as rational human being. Photo credits are silly. Okay. So here's the deal. I, I am not into UFOs. And I know you just used the correct term, but we're going to call them UFOs. Actually, I just want to point out that's no longer considered I the correct know, term. Okay. It's now unidentified anomalous phenomena. Oh, God. Words are tough these days. You have to really be regimented. Okay. So I'm not into this stuff. And then in 2019, so four years ago, you start to see this in the New York Times and other very credible, in my view, outlets, you start to see video from military airplanes of these crazy flying objects, like absolutely like darting left, right at speeds far faster than an airplane using no visible propulsion. This is on multiple videos from multiple different military aircraft with credible pilots saying, yeah, we saw this, like lots of them. And it makes you say, well, what the heck is that? Because there's been still, to my knowledge, I'm glad we have an expert here, been no explanation for it. Just Google it if you want to see it. It's everywhere. There's been a bunch of them. And then more recently, you've got some former uh, military credentialed, secret credentialed people coming out and saying, oh, not only are there these, there's also like military or um, unidentified craft from other planets or other galaxies here on Earth, where not only have we found now most recently this week, not only have we found spaceships that the, the U.S. government is now holding and secretly holding some really huge, like the size of a football field. That's the latest. Not only that, there's even like dead creatures. Of course, there hasn't been a single photo, a single video, no evidence. And so everyone's scratching their head because those of us, so I'm speaking for the, as the, the normal guy, what did you say most of the time? <laughs> like what the heck is going on? So fortunately we have an expert. Okay. Thank you. Josh Silver, regular person. Salman Hamid, there is indisputably a lot of coverage about this, and the United States Congress is having hearings about it. I mean, there's got to be something to it, no? Uh, thank you. And I'm the irregular person here, I guess. <laughs> no. no. Uh, okay, so uh, I have come here and talked about UFOs multiple times, and I would very soon, um, it's not seen on the radio, but uh, Bill will roll his eyes when I would mention the 2017 New York Times article. But let me, this is really interesting, okay? There is no question about it. Uh, but I think why we should pay attention to it and why this is interesting, my argument is different. So let me give you that uh, sort of like, you know, the conclusion first, and then I'll come back to it why. And so I think this is a great story, very important story about how media and profits work. 
this is a story, this is a mythology that was created. There, there is an older mythology. UFOs are as American as apple pie. This is an American story, but New York Times brilliantly with just a couple of reporters who were believers, and they were not even reporters, two of them were not reporters, but a couple of them who were believers, how they got the story to the front page of the New York Times. And because it came to the front page of the New York Times, how then it triggered the congressional hearings because it was on the front page of the New York Times. Which story do you mean? Which, which I'll, piece I'll, of it? I'll come back to that in a second. So I'm going to actually okay. relay those, those things. But my point is that this is where the defense contracts come in. All the people that were involved in the 2017 story, the people that were mentioned in there, they have millions of dollars of defense contracts now investigating all of UFOs. And remember, you said there was no evidence for that. There is still none. Nevertheless, millions of dollars are being awarded, and they have been awarded. So this story, and then now there is a twist to it, and Josh, this is where you might find it interesting, because even though it is overall bipartisan, Christian Gildebrand is actually leading one of the committees for that, but it has... The senator from The senator from New York, but... It has taken, Otherwise known as a rational human being who ran for president at one point, that, that senator? But I'm also going to bring up the less rational people. So Matt Gates and other congressmen, the one, there is one from uh, Tennessee and others, uh, Republicans. They are using this to bring about that this is how government cover up. We have been saying that for a long time, and these UFOs are real. So this is actually taking, just like covid or other things, this is becoming politicized. And soon you will actually start seeing, and, and once you lose the bearing on what is real and what isn't, and I think that's where New York Times is fundamentally at fault. Just like Q, QAnon, I don't know, like, you know, anything goes, that's what it does. So then I, I can actually come back to the specifics. Okay, so here's the specifics I wanna know yeah. about. There have been reports yeah. by serious military pilots saying, we saw this, we saw it. We don't have a photograph, we don't have a video, but we saw it. These, these things happen in front of us. No, there's video of it. There is a grainy video, like, you know, there is never sort of like no clear picture, but it's, it's on the radar yeah. or it's other things. Yeah. Okay. Far away, but so, never clear. So, like, you know. yeah, so what, what explains that? I mean, these aren't uh, uh, people who have, uh, have a history of, delusions or making things up. They're credible people. What do you make of those reports, Salman Hamid? So three things. One, let's separate out the issue. Can there be life elsewhere in the universe? Absolutely. Can there be intelligent life out there in the universe? I believe absolutely. Okay. Can they be here? Possibly. We don't know. Right? The question is, what kind of evidence does it take to jump from Something that I don't understand. Two, these are spacecraft, spacecrafts from another civilization. Okay, so what planet. about those videos of um, these? Um, so, so there are a lot of unexplained things. I can actually explain. Uh, like there are 95%, and this is actually from some of the believers also, that 90 to 95% of things that you see are unexplained get explained by natural causes. Few percent doesn't. So, yeah, all of a sudden we had Chinese balloons who came th that came from, well, China, not from some galaxy of, uh, four or five billion years ago. And oftentimes there are these balloons, regular birthday balloons have also been found way up uh, in the atmosphere. So, yeah, when you see those type of things, there can be multiple things. It could be instruments. It could be some other things. 
and there are atmospheric phenomena. So you say, what is it? We don't know. Let's investigate more. The, the problem comes in just because we don't know what it is to making a claim that it is something. Okay, but just to be clear, there, we, there has never been a credible explanation for what those were. No, because we don't have, we may not have ever any clear cut information. Let's let me give give this example. New York, like, you know, police department saw ninety percent of murders. Ten percent never get solved. That doesn't mean that those ten percent were abducted by aliens, right? We can assume that sort of like not killed by aliens or whatever, like you know. But there is sometimes there isn't enough evidence. So the way science works is that I mean, again, to quote Saint Carl Sagan, that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Do you think that the objects that are in those videos is from another planet or galaxy? Most likely not, but it's possible. And the most likely not because, as you can see, all those videos also are shaky. They are sort of like, you know, blurry. It's not clear. But if I can come to it from the New York Times article, I thought, so this is 2017, and by the way, I have the original copy. It is a collector's it's item. It's a collector's item. It's kind of yellow. It. This was, and was in the front page story. I was amazed at that story because I was like, New York Times is putting it on the front page. These claims about unidentified flying objects, and this is sort of like I'm talking about the original thing, they've been made from World War I. Even before that, they were airships. Right. I remember, Salman, in auditing your course, and there were unidentified flying objects from the 18th century. And guess what? They look just like sailing ships. Right. So, so there have been all of these various types of things that have existed. So that's not the case. There is a famous case of USS New York in, in February of 1945, which was going to bomb from, uh, it was going to bomb Iwo Jima. And over there, the captain over there, and again, very well trained, like, you know, in all of these things. And he thought that there was a Japanese uh, some secret weapon that was coming towards them, and he actually had ordered to fire at them. Whereas the navigator who was asleep, he came up and like he was like, "What is going on?" And they said, "Well, there is a Japanese some some secret weapon up there." I said, "No, that's Venus." Okay, <laughs> so the gunners were ready. The captain had ordered, but it so the fact so can do humans make mistakes, especially when thinking about uh, like you know what is out in. Of flying and stuff like that, yes. But that's not what caught my attention. And that, I don't think, is the central point. There was a claim, as you mentioned now, in the original 2017 article that artifacts have been discovered, and those are being housed in uh, Las Vegas. And is there any evidence, any proof, that there are any alien artifacts that have been recovered or are somehow being kept by either private or public entities? Is there any proof of that? This is where the story gets, I think, the heart of it. That New York Times put that on the front page, that story, and the claim was, and let me just read it, because, I mean, again, I, I've brought all of these things. So Bigelow, who, was a big, who owns Bigelow Airspace, uh, he was a friend of Harry Reid. So there is the congressional connections already in there. He was actually a donor to Harry Reid. He got 20, Former Senator Harry Reid. Former Reed, Senator Harry Reid. He actually, Robert Bigelow, got $22 million dollars over a five-year period, and, and like, you know, to what? To house some artifacts that were claimed to have been discovered. This is from the New York Times, again, from 2017, December 2017. It says, the funding went to Mr. Bigelow Company, Bigelow Aerospace, which hired some co subcontractors and, solic and solicited research for the program. 
Uh, and then it says that uh, under Mr. Bigelow's direction, the company modified buildings in Las Vegas for the storage of metal alloys and other materials that Mr. Elizondo, he was the whistleblower, and program contractors said they had been recovered from unidentified aerial phenomena. And to get to the bottom line here, because we're going to take a break in a second, is there any evidence that any of these things came from anywhere other than Earth? Four years later, in one of the articles in the New York Times about UFOs, claiming more claims about artifacts, there was one line that said that the artifacts that were mentioned in the 2017 article all turned out to be of human origins. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back, and we're going to get to the truth of unidentified flying objects, unidentified aerial phenomenon, amorphous aerial phenomenon, whatever that stuff is called now. We'll be right back if with If Salman Hamid isn't abducted by the Bigelows. In the meantime, we'll be right back. We continue our exploration of unidentified flying objects, or whatever they are called now, with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid and rational human being Josh Silver. We continued our conversation during the break, and Josh, you had a point to make, a question to ask. So, yeah, microphone's uh, uh, yours. <clears throat> Thanks, Bill. A reframe, which is, I know a lot of rational people who really believe that something's cooking, that, that that's, something's happening here, and that there's to some degree a cover up and you know there's a lot of that and a lot of smart people say that the universe is infinite and there's therefore it's a truism not a theory that there there has to be other life in the universe there just has to and you guys the the expert is is nodding his head in agreement but it, it virtually it's like you know nearly certain and so the idea that they could travel here over billions of light years is, is, is very difficult to get your head around unless you question time and space and what kinds of developments could happen over billions of years of innovation, and we just don't know. There's, there's reasonable theories that the first seed of life on the planet here could have come from other life forms in, somewhere else, and, and it's all not crazy to say that. So how do we reconcile the fact that there has to be life somewhere out there in the universe with what's happening here and what do you say to those level-headed people who are pretty convinced something's cooking like what say you so again as i said those are two different things is there i mean as i said i mean i actually think there is intelligence intelligent life out there as well the question is do we have any evidence for them here I mean, even our galaxy is pretty big. And the fact that, like, you know, they're very advanced, but they have these very things that we can see. I mean, in some sense, you can say, like, you know, that if they didn't want us to see them, they wouldn't have. But the way to think about it is, how does science work? How, there are a lot of people, a lot of astronomers, who would love to believe, including me, by the way, to have a contact with aliens. Can you imagine... Here is the proof of aliens yeah. on Earth. You're a gazillionaire and, and a hero forever. And my God, and, the interviews on HMP and a few other media outlets would be astounding. And that's the reason why I was excited about the New York Times article, because for the first time, it actually said that they have artifacts. Right. So I actually thought I genuinely believe I was like, they're not going to put in if they haven't seen it. Then the reporters gave the interview. Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Keen were both believers. They had never seen those. Then recent claims are also written that the last week, uh, the report in debrief, which New York Times this time rejected or did not publish their story. Washington Post actually passed it to Slate also passed it to uh, Politico, sorry, Politico also passed it through. They have another story of dead bodies, the one that you mentioned and all of that. But again, they haven't seen it themselves. Right. So how do you look at that? 
think of, I'll give you a big red flag for me when I look at that. When they are talking about alien spacecrafts or technology, they are only talking about spacecraft and technology. That we are going to re reverse engineer. We have been reverse engineering all that. No. If you discover anything alien, a spacecraft, your first or there are multiple questions. This is going to be the biggest discovery ever. It's going to radically transform the way we think about <laughs> life, humanity, our place in the universe, and all of that stuff. So what, is, what are the kind of questions you would ask? Wait a minute. Are, are the DNA that their dead bodies are made up of, is, that, is there life based upon our DNA, the same molecule that we are based upon? Or, for example, like, you know, did they, what kind of spacecraft, well, did they have hands? What kind of evolution took place on their planet? How kind of, because we don't know. We only have one example of evolution. So finding even a microbe dramatically brings up fundamental questions in biology, philosophy, astronomy, and all of that stuff. Look how poor their curiosity is. Look at when they talk about they have discovered, they have recovered alien spacecraft. The biggest red flag is lack of curiosity. Their stuff comes from science fiction conspiracy films. Oh, the technology is going to be, technology is the last thing that we would ask because the first thing would be, wait a minute, how did they build it? What kind of life forms did they, did they have consciousness? How did they, their brain structures? But not to mention that even if you talk about spacecrafts, and by the way, some of the claims in last week's uh, article about aliens was that like, the U.S. has had these spacecrafts for a while, like, you know, for tens of years or t uh, like, you know. Since 1933. Right, whatever. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. think about it. We can actually figure out based upon looking at the spacecraft, how exposed they are to radiation, which part of the galaxy it came from. They're fascinating questions because if any space, if spacecraft is out in space, there are different levels of radiations that it get exposed to. We can actually tell how light, which direction it comes from, how far it is being traveling based upon the interactions in space. Now, I'm just giving you these things based upon the fact that, you know, these are some of the things that you can immediately ask. Look at the type of things they say, what they have found. And you are going to find none of these questions are there. It's only about technology. Because it's like, oh, it's a remote control. Oh, it's there. That's not the first question you are going to ask. And that's not the first question that people who search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which a lot of people are doing, they don't ask those questions. They ask questions, wait a minute, what kind of life was it? That's not out there. There's our evidence. Salman Hamid is an alien. There's no question about it. <laughs> Okay, 30 seconds, Salman. I, I know you're a skeptic, um, and there are a lot of reasons why alien spacecraft have not arrived on Earth of all places. What would convince you in 30 seconds? Uh, again, as I said, I mean, I think if we do get some samples, let's see them. The, the claim comes out that they are alloys that we don't know what they are made up of. That is, uh, like, you know, uh, to put it mildly, crap. And, and not the not the alloy, but the, but the reason is because the uh, because the you can actually figure out what elements things are made up of, right? So that's the so I would say if we find something, we have to find out what these things are made up of and what they are, what material, what elements, and things like that. 
We're going to have to leave it there. We have been speaking with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid and rational human being and longtime guest on our show, Josh Silver. Thank you both so very much. Really interesting. You bet. Thank you. Thank you very much. And welcome to our show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And uh, we have a very special guest today. You know, on May 11th, the COVID emergency was declared over, rightly or wrongly. And we started to see life pre-COVID start to sort of peak, it's, uh, peak up through the, uh, through the crevices. And uh, one of the places that that really does manifest itself is in the travel industry. The airline industry suffered enormously during covid uh, and it is rebounding somewhat. And I have a number of friends and colleagues who are starting to think once again about travel, international travel. And um, I think the most traveled person that I know is Peter Jones. He is the president of the American Council for International Studies. The acronym is ACES. It is the, I believe, the world's largest uh, student travel company and Peter uh, probably has the largest catch of uh, of miles collected in his uh, <laughs> in his travel inventory of anybody that I know and he's with us today from Boston uh, it's great to have you here in Massachusetts Peter Jones it's very nice to be here Buzz always a, a pleasure and um, yeah you've caught me in between <clears throat> I think uh, two trips so I'm uh, certainly on terra firma at the moment and um, and actually already planning and looking uh, forward to my next uh, my next trip. So, uh, yeah, boy, have I got have I got some reports for you? And I'm really interested in hearing them. But first, folks might not know about ACES. They might not know about you. So my understanding, you've told me in the past, is that you first started traveling while you were attending university in England. And there's something about travel that caught your attention. Can you tell us how you got involved in this industry? Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I always used to go, I used to take um, the bus, because that was the deal, out to the airport. And I was fascinated in Heathrow, and I'd watch the planes. And it wasn't sort of like I was a plane spotter, but I would stand up there, and I was always fascinated by imagining these planes going to places that I'd never been to, and I'd never been anywhere. Um, and so that kind of put a little spark in my mind. And then when I was at university, uh, I got a job as a tour manager, tour guide, uh, working in Europe. And I really had not much experience traveling in Europe, but I became a, a very adapted uh, and fast uh, learner. And so I started to take uh, high school kids with their teachers around Europe. And, um, and believe me, it, was, it wasn't even the blind leading the blind here. This was, um, you know, making it up on the spot and the raw enthusiasm of seeing somewhere for the first time, along with the whole group, I think carried me through. And I won Tour Manager of the Year, which was extraordinary in those days. Uh, when I think about it, it was, um, it was a terrible thing that they gave me. And so I was invited over to the States and I worked um, in the States, uh, having, having traveled around Europe and did quite, quite well and then set up uh, a company with uh, several of my colleagues. And so ACES was born and um, that was in 1979. So, you know, all those years ago before uh, cell phones and the, you know, uh, Eurostar trains under the, under the uh, channel and, you know, before a lot of things actually. And so we, we kind of managed to cobble our way through it and did it the old fashioned way. 
And then since then, we've just watched this industry uh, boom and also the industry of travel in general as airlines have become these great facilitators to carry our dreams everywhere. And then everything pretty much came to a stop uh, in 2020 in March when you know the pandemic hit. And so at that point, we had to dig down, uh, we made some adjustments and we waited for uh, two years and, and really you know, what we're seeing now is the kind of the pent up demand um, boom that we thought we would see. And so people are traveling, people who had wanted to travel. And, and, and our market is based around teachers who do school trips. So, you know, teacher, the French teacher, the Spanish teacher, the Latin teacher uh, will put their hand up. They're usually always actually charismatic uh, group leaders and off they go and they carry their kids around 25 to 30 kids and they take them on 10 day tours and most of the time most of the time i would say these become uh life-changing moments for the students and and that is entirely because why why uh, is that uh, peter jones why does that become such a life-changing experience for students because these kids have only read about stuff and even in these days you know when they have access uh through their computers you know being there and, and, and that's the thing to emphasize, being there. It's that great Peter Sellers film, but being there is, is, is just better than anything else. And so a teacher has prepped these kids for being there. And, you know, you have to imagine that, uh, you know, seeing the Eiffel Tower, seeing the Forum Coliseum, you know, just, just staring at a gondola in Venice. I mean, it's amazing stuff. And I mean, to this day, when I'm traveling, I always, you know, I always sit there and I look at it. And when people say to me, hey, does it ever get tired and, uh, you know, going to the same place? And I always say, well, look, you know how you go around a pool table and the second time or the third time around the pool table, you see different shots. And that's how I would encourage people to look at cities. Think of a pool table. You always see a different shot. And I think that the kids are seeing this for the very first time. And most of the time, very high percentage of those kids will go on um, uh, semester abroad programs. And many of those kids will end up as teachers. Many of those kids will uh, you know, work and travel uh, in Europe or in South or Latin America or in Asia. So you know, it's, um, it's kind of a, a great thing to be in. It's a great business to be in. And, and I've always loved watching the results, as it were. And the results are pretty compelling, I must say. You know, I've always had fun with that. So usually these tours, they are organized by teachers, obviously with parents' consent. And I know that you, ACES, has, you have offices in Rome and in London and all over the world, and the world is literally your oyster. I'd like to just sort of uh, focus on what are called the Schengen countries, those 27 countries in Europe where you don't need visas to travel country to country, <laughs> yeah. uh, and you are European you still haven't shed that accent, Peter. It's still plaguing you. Well, you know, when you say 27 countries, of course, I was lamenting because it was 28 until uh, the Brits uh, executed Brexit and the Europeans waved them goodbye. But, uh, yeah, I still feel very European, actually, Buzz. Uh, and the accent uh, is, is, is OK. And, you know, my French and Spanish and Italian, they're, they're OK. I, I'm, I'm pretty good at hacking my way through those three languages. Um, and I'll even do it in front of a French, Spanish, or Italian teacher. So uh, no shame is what I think they call it. No shame at all. <laughs> Just so, hands up. So for those people who are lucky enough to be able to consider traveling, it's expensive. Um, th there's been a whole lot of talk about it. 
And by the way, I want to repeat, you're the only person who ever said to me the following, I love airports. I've never <laughs> heard that before. Um, but uh, there's been a lot of talk about, and the Department of, of Transportation here with Pete Buttigieg has been investigating airlines. And there was a report recently that said that a lot of the delays, which we incessantly hear about, are not because of weather, that only um, 0.65, that is two-thirds of 1% are caused by del by weather, these delays, that it's mismanagement yeah. and it's greed that causes this. Now, there's an acknowledgement that during COVID, airlines suffered. But what will people experience now if they wish to travel? <clears throat> will they experience the same kind of delays we keep hearing about that make people crazy or what? Yeah, I mean... Uh, even this summer and in the spring, for sure, we saw a lot of what, what we'll call spontaneous delays, you know, airlines, um, not just equipment delays, not just weather delays. A lot of the time, the airlines are attracting um, or having a hard time attracting pilots back into the business. So there's a pilot shortage. There's a flight attendant shortage. And, you know, during the two years of COVID, uh, people adapted to different professions. Um, and, and, you know, it can be very grueling being a pilot. I mean, imagine, you know, traveling for, let's say, even on the short horse, two hours. Well, that's a, a kind of five-hour journey. And then they usually have a, a sort of two-hour break and then come back. On a transatlantic flight, these guys are only getting one night in a city. So you fly to London, you get that night in London, and then you travel back the next day. And that's grueling on the body, especially... Um, you know, because you have to concentrate and you have to know what you're doing and you've got the responsibility of, you know, about 300 people behind you. So I think that the airlines are having a hard time um, attracting pilots. I also don't think they're paying pilots enough. So, you know, they're, they're, they're playing the old game of, well, you know, isn't it good to be back and so on. So a lot of the delays are just due to uh, woman manpower uh, not being able to slot in and then they're coming up with different reasons. But the other issue is that once the delay happens, the airlines are, well, we've had COVID for two years, we've been through it, we've, you know, we've lost a lot of money, and so we're not going to compensate. So you try and find help when you're going through a delay. Now, you imagine if you're one person, you have a delay, it's different. I mean, you can figure it out. But if you're a group of 20 or 30, you're a teacher, um, you know, it's a problem. And so we, we, had a, we had a group just two days ago, they're going to Iceland. They are delayed four days. The reason for that is that their flight was canceled arbitrarily last minute because of pilot. Um, and there were no flights because the flights are full for the next three days. So we had to extend this group for as many days as we can get away with uh, because they have uh, obligations to come back. That goes on. That never happened uh, pre-COVID. And airlines were more generous, more accessible, would work with you. And so airlines have changed as well in terms of, you know, having lost a, a boatload of money. Now they're back to about 75% of their pre-pandemic uh, level. But, you know, there's a shortage of pilots. Pilots want more money. Uh, it's not an attractive industry. And so, you know, overall, I would say that this becomes an issue. And that's why you're seeing a lot of spontaneous delays. And we're seeing it all over the place, which means that, you know, we're having to put our good hands, if you like, all over the place to try to make sure that the kids especially uh, are looked after because, you know, for these kids, they've saved up a year and a half. It's a big deal. They're traveling. And imagine, you know, you're going to Iceland for nine, nine days and suddenly you're presented with, 
you know, a five day trip. So we, we basically eat that whole thing. We, 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 we cancel what we can, but we get no money back and we extend the trip out. And, um, you know, I've always said that that's the culture that I want inside the organization, but, but, you know, it's been tougher, uh, during the post pandemic, uh, as we go to and airlines, especially, you know, the fares are higher, um, because they want more money. Um, the, 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 the non-refundable pieces of that fare are much higher percentage than they used to be. And so you're getting let down with no support. Um, which sounds awfully like an ad for don't travel, but no, I would say that, yeah, it, 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 there's a slowing down. I can feel it. I can see it right now. And as we slow down, so the cities will become more accessible. But the pandemic has left us all with challenges that we never thought we would have, um, not just in the air, but in the ground. I mean, all museums um, and, and points of interest now have timed entry. They will not return to post, uh, to pre-pandemic levels. So, for example, going into St. Peter's, going into the Vatican, going into the Colosseum, to the Louvre, all of these are really saying now, well, we're happy with 70% of where we used to be. And for that, we're going to charge more. For that, we're going to have timed entry. So shortage of guides, la-da-da, la-da-da. So it, it becomes more challenging. And, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, frankly, teachers choose organizations like us is because um, they have to uh, depend upon us to sort this stuff out. So, yeah. And, and then lastly, lastly, in addition to all of this, um, of course, we have the cruise companies coming back. Not, not back to levels, but imagine you have, you know, in Barcelona, 20,000, four cruise ships arriving in Barcelona. Now you're competing to get into the Picasso Museum, uh, the Sagrada Familia with, uh, with these guys. So, you know, the cruises are one of the more, I would say, destructive and pollutant parts of a growing industry that um, needs to be managed better, I would say. Not yeah. to mention the number of people who get sick while on cruises. We are speaking Not with Peter... Yeah, it was Peter Jones. He's the president of the American Council for International Studies. We're going to take a break. When we come back, let's talk about a little bit more fun stuff. Let's talk about what Europe offers to us these days. We'll be right back with Peter Jones. Anything on track? Peter, you're great. Hey, Bill. Having fun? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I'm uh, having fun. Yeah, I'll go all positive now if you'd like. I Let's go positive. Let's talk about yeah. uh, where people should be considering these days traveling to. Let's talk yeah, about... I, I think it would be worth covering whether you have any ongoing concerns about COVID and travel. Yeah, okay. Um, because I, I think that's really what people want to know about. I think that's the greatest fear, so... I, I know you guys want to go to a happy place, but I... Uh, All right, well, let's I start just, there. Oh, we, we can do that, Bill. Yeah, sure. Why don't we, Bill, you bring us back, start there, and then, then we'll go to a happy place. What is it? What's ACES stand for? American Council for International Studies. ACIS. Yeah. Good thinking, except it reads backwards. I know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, these were done by Nan Parati. 
Yes, I can tell. Sorry, I <laughs> <love that. laughs> it's the old Johnny Carson show routine, isn't it? You can tell the joke off of that. <laughs> so when's your next trip? Where are you going? I'm going July the 8th. I'm going to London, uh, spending a few days there for a meeting. And then I'll be going to Paris, Venice, train to Florence, Rome, uh, and then home. That's kind of my next trip. Hey, Peter, is, uh, is, is ASIS an NGO or is it a profit-making organization? No, it's profit, for profit, Bill. Okay. 10 seconds. We continue our conversation with Peter Jones, who is the president of the American Council for International Studies, a company that organizes tours and educational uh, and, uh, projects for uh, schools and teachers and organizations of all sorts. I would love to know your view about the danger, if any, at this point uh, from COVID and where th that fits into the picture of traveling and in particular traveling internationally. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Yeah, I, I think the uh, if you travel on an airplane now, you're <clears throat> you're seeing very few people with masks on. Uh, there are no flight crews now. Uh, Iberia, I think, was the last flight crew that wore masks in Europe, at least. Um, and American, uh, it's all optional. Uh, however, for for me, I think if you wanted to to feel safe. It's probably not a bad idea to carry a mask. I think there's still a greater uh, possibility that you can catch COVID when you're traveling. The, the major difference is now, Bill, that you <clears throat> you don't have to test um, if you uh, have a sniffle. Um, but the rules apply. If you do test and you have COVID, then you you can't get on that plane. So in our business, which is group business, you know, with a high school student. What that would mean is that somebody would have to stay behind with a high school student. Um, I haven't had now one single COVID case uh, throughout the course of this year um, that's, that, that, that's come to my mind. Not just because people are not testing, but you know, it, it literally has disappeared. Um, so I would say that to all travelers out there, yeah, I would pack a few masks. Um, I would pack a couple of kits. I would not incessantly uh, test uh, because they can, you can get false readings, but I would carry the same kind of mini kit that we were urging people to carry during the transition out. And you should feel relatively comfortable. I mean, I, I think an airplane is probably the one place if you were going to uh, get COVID, where you would get COVID. So uh, there are people on the airplane that do have masks on um, and I sometimes wear a mask. I'm irregular. I find it very difficult to wear the N93 masks. They they make it very difficult for me to breathe. Uh, the medical masks are easier, and I find those comfortable uh, while not 100% proof. So you know, I don't see any sign of COVID out there in terms of whole groups wearing masks. Uh, guides are not wearing masks. Restaurants. There is no regulation on trains. So you know, I think that from the world's point of view. Um, COVID has disappeared. And from a traveler's point of view, my only tip would be carry a couple of tests, 
carry some masks if you feel uncomfortable, then wear a mask that's comfortable on an airplane because seven hours in a mask uh, is tricky. So I would say, you know, my argument against the N93 masks are that it's pretty tough to wear those things for eight, nine hours. But yeah, I think, I think as, as Biden said, COVID is over. Um, it sure looks like that when you go out there, especially if you traveled a year ago, but I would ha actually carry in my back pocket the things that I needed when I was uh, in, when I was traveling during the height of COVID as I was. Okay. Let's have a little bit of fun. Yeah. If I'm ready to take a trip in okay. Europe. Where do you propose? What's the most fun city to go to right now and why? Okay. So, you know, I, I, I would say if I were taking a trip right now, I would get my feet wet uh, by traveling to somewhere like Iceland or London. I mean, they're, they're close destinations. Iceland is close. It's expensive. Uh, and London uh, has an incredible array of flights. Uh, you can often pick a bargain up JetBlue flights there now daily from a number of cities in the USA. Um, and London is a great place to start. From London, you can sort of hub and spoke. You can you can take the wonderful train network um, uh, to Paris, and you can go Eurostar to Paris and do a couple of days in Paris. And you know, really, for a starter, that's enough. But I, I would say, for me, when I've been in London for a week, there's so much theatre. Uh, they've just had a change of ownership at the royal level, uh, so you can uh, <laughs> go to the toy store and see. King Charles in Lego, um, the, the, the Queen is dead, long live the King. Uh, and it's fascinating. Uh, they've got Union Jack still up everywhere in, in, in Regent Street and, and Oxford Street uh, to celebrate uh, the, the uh, coronation. And I don't think they're taking them down anytime soon. So London to me is a very easy destination. It's also full of amazing sites, uh, incredible sites. And you can get to places that are interesting, like Paris, in two and a half hours on a Eurostar. And so the, the, what I'm always fascinated about when I go uh, from St. Pancras, which is the train station, to go to Paris, it's such a beautiful station. It, it, it's, it's a station that's been renovated. It's gorgeous. It has this huge 30-foot statue of the kiss, a couple coming together, uh, either meeting or saying goodbye. It's never clear uh, at, the, at the font of the station and then you get to paris at the gare du nord and honestly you know i ha i hate to say this but paris can only get better when you arrive at the gare du nord it's it's just pitiful uh and and yet somehow once you jump on that metro you come out uh somewhere uh you are uh looking at a city that is probably the most beautiful city in the world and it's only two and a half hours away from from london so you know, to me, I think London, Paris as a as a kind of an, a re-entry uh, is safe. It's wonderful. Hotel infrastructure is great. Two metro systems that are phenomenal. Uh, you can use your um, uh, your telephone to click through in London. So you don't need Oyster cards anymore. You just tap your way in and tap your way out. Um, you can do that from the airport by tapping. So the whole system of getting you back into travel mode. Uh, London is, a, is breathtaking, more theater than Broadway, uh, a third of the price of Broadway, and, and easy to get around. So you're not so worried about where you'll be staying location-wise. So you can hunt the bargains. 
Paris, the same thing. You've got the Metro. Metro is phenomenal. Um, uh, albeit a little creakier and crankier than London. But I would say if I had to reintroduce myself to travel, I would do London uh, and Paris. And when you're in London, you can always take the train and go to my alma mater uh, down at, in Brighton at the University of Sussex. And Brighton is a lovely uh, seaside town, Edwardian seaside town, beautiful, beautiful, um, something that uh, I, would, I would always recommend. So those two places, the only, um, the only challenge will be to get into the Louvre easily. Uh, the queues will be long, always worth it. You've got the Musée d'Orsay as your backup for the Impressionists. You've got the Picasso Museum in the Marais. Um, there's just so many museums in Paris. It, truly, Paris is, is kind of a cultural center. London is theater and pageantry. And, and both cities, unlike, say, Rome, have an incredible metro system. So for me, I think um, if I had to go once and go in there uh, and then save Rome for another day, save Spain for another day, save Greece for another day. Uh, and, and at this time of the year, especially Paris, especially, it doesn't get dark until around 11.45 at night. Uh, it's an hour ahead of uh, London. So, you know, London is, is it stays light pretty late well, i remember when i was a kid but paris you, you know you're walking around you're walking along the river and it's 11 o'clock and the eiffel tower is sparkling and it's still light and it's just amazing so you know it's uh it's a beautiful city in the summertime especially you've got the gardens uh you know you, you've got everything and i i i i do adore paris yikes I'm from london sorry bill i have to book a flight i have to leave uh, <laughs> this all just sounds so wonderful. Peter Jones, yeah, yeah. if people want to find out more about the American Council for International Studies, how do they contact you? Yeah, we're, uh, we're acis.com, acis.com. Uh, and from there, you can see my blogs are up there. Um, I'm called Pietro Place. Uh, you, can, you can access my crazy travel schedule uh, and somebody can help you. And if you want to know anything more about us, um, yeah, I mean, we were founded in 78 you know, before the days of uh, computer and cell phones. So, um, you know, we remember those days very well. Um, but the great thing is that the cities have uh, adapted very well to the changes in technology. Um, and, and, and for example, the other day, I have to say I was in Notre Dame, which is closed because of the fire that took place in 2019. Um, but I did a virtual reality tour of Notre Dame just next to Notre Dame. And I enjoyed uh, being part of the building of Notre Dame uh, in the uh, 11th century and, and climbing the heights and watching the spires and the stained glass go in. And that was one of the most thrilling things that I've done, um, a virtual reality of Notre Dame. Because you can't go in it, but you sort of come out and you take this thing off and then you look up and there's Notre Dame. And really was, incredible. Uh, Really incredible. Yeah, it was an amazing moment. Amazing moment. Well, it was an amazing moment speaking with you, Peter Jones, about travel. And um, hey, bon voyage to you. Thank you so much hey, for joining us. See you out there somewhere, Buzz. See you out there somewhere. Right? <laughs> okay. See you on, on the tube. Okay. See you on the tube. The tube.
And here we are with the former president of the uh, Northampton City Council, Bill Dwight, the observer of the human condition. Bill knows something about everything. Hello, Bill Dwight. Hi, hi Buzz. And if you don't believe Buzz, believe Bill. He will tell you, yes, he knows something about everything. Well, if I don't, I'll make it up for you, and it'll sound there believable. Yeah, absolutely. That's the best part. That's what yeah. I like the most. I went to law school. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Bill Dwight, pay raises in Northampton. Right. What you thinking? Well, I think, I, I mean... I'm going to actually... Well, for those of our listeners who don't know, why don't you tell, tell oh, us yeah, what sure. happened? There's, there's something in the charter. There's been a, an advisory committee, a recommendation. Bring us up to date and then give us your opinion. Sure thing. I mean, um, the last time... There, there's a stipend that's assigned to uh, counselors and school committee members. And um, the last time it was changed was while I was there. Uh, it had been 30 years previous to that. The stipend was uh, 5000 Now it's closer to ten, depending... And but that's for city councilors and for school committee. School committee's cheaper, uh, lower, <laughs> smaller, <laughs> I, uh, less. I'm digging a hole and I'm going to stop. And the the um, when under the charter reform, which Bill was involved in, um, is determined because it's politically impossible to for councilors and the mayor to raise their salaries because there's a built-in conflict of interest. They have to vote and approve the budget, and it's required for them to approve their raises. So consequently, it's very difficult to pay yourself. And so it makes it, it, we built into the charter that there will be a committee that will review and make a recommendation relative to what would be appropriate to pay them. Um, I just want to take this moment to point out that um, when I got the, uh, as moderator of Ashfield, when I got that incredible increase from $50 to 150 a year, I had nothing to do with it. No, and that is, and therein is the problem that you described, that, that the presumption, anyway, you know, people's tendency to default towards, oh, the scummy government ripping us off and stuff. So it, it, it was designed, one, to keep out the issue of in some level of a uh, conflict of interest because it doesn't whatever is approved doesn't go into effect until the following term I, I, I and I'm gonna fall in the minority here actually um, I, I actually don't I when when they were first talking about doing a stipend raise for me or while well, I was there it wasn't for me but I would have benefited I was opposed to it I actually stand opposed to it I don't think I mean, part of the argument is, is this is a barrier to entry, right? The, um, the money's not enough. And that's probably true, but I never met anyone who didn't run because of the money and or ran because of the money. That, that was not the incentive. You could do it like Boston, where you pay them $160,000 to $180,000 a year, and then it's their job. And then their motivations and their, and their inspirations come from, emanate from that, that point. But there must be some people who can't afford to put in that amount of time. And you nailed it. It's time. It's not money. It's the time thing. And then there are other ways to compensate that would make barriers to entry um, less so. Uh, provide child care for people who would need it. Provide comprehensive insurance, which is available, which there was an argument against that once upon a time. But I think it's absolutely critical. 
focus on the services and the needs of of a family that you know say if a single mother with three children wants to run but can't possibly consider it because of the time commitment make it so that she can have that time because $16,000 okay that's what they're talking about raising the stipends and which is minimum wage which you could get at McDonald's handing out fries and it's it, it, it isn't, there, there's, it's not an equivalent doing governance. Governance actually, to some degree, I believe, should require some aspect of sacrifice. I was the lowest wage earner, I think, the entire time I served there. Um, uh, I had other resources to tap into to sustain me to be my slacker lifestyle. But the fact is that I was making less than anyone else. When I got elected, I was surprised to find out that we got money. I never even looked into that. And I went, oh, whoa, I get, I get $5,000, which I used to pay for my share of the insurance. So I literally would get a check every month from the city, $0.00, which I would put on my refrigerator proudly. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Bill, you, you asked Mayor uh, G.L. Shara about this uh, raise increase that was being proposed for her. And her comment was she wanted to stay out of it, right? That's what she said. It's up to the council, and she doesn't really have a say, and so she didn't take a position with regard to the recommendation. I, I'd like to know from you, though, Bill. Um, mayor is an— Absolutely different. Yeah. It, it's, a, uh, it's a full-time job. It's two jobs. It's not. It's an administrator. It's a it, CEO. And it's 24 hours a day. It, yeah. ne- it never stops. People never stop talking to you. You never get away from it. No. Um, uh and there is a proposal here, and the mayor now is about the 80th highest paid uh, employee of the city. This new proposal would raise the mayor's salary, I think, to $130,000 plus, which would make the mayor like the 13th highest person uh, on the city payroll. But it sounds like a huge increase, and I'm wondering whether or not there's going to be pushback or whether people will say, well, uh, compared to other cities, this is what mayors are paid, and we should raise our mayor's salary to what is commensurate with the responsibility. I, I agree with that. I, I think that, you know, it's it, being a mayor um, in, a, in a city is like being an MBA coach. You're basically coaching people who make significantly more money than you, right? You're, and, and you can easily be fired if things go south. And the, whereas, the, you know, you, if you're a superstar and you don't care, you're you're getting paid tons of money, and you get to stay until uh, you decide to go. The mayor, in this instance, as we said, has an enormous amount of responsibility. Now, if we were paying for a town manager, you know, if we were a different structure, it would cost that and then some. Uh, some people would argue that they don't come in with the same resume as a town manager, but actually this is where town managers are made. But the fact that... W- I don't think it's 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 an enormous. Yeah. And, and to that, that point, we should point out Alex Morse, for example, who was mayor of Holyoke for I believe some ten years, yeah. and became the uh, town, town manager, manager of Provincetown. Of Provincetown, right? And make a pant load more money than that, than he made in Holyoke. Um, although I would argue he he also inherited some pretty enormous problems. But the fact is is that that he is actually now a professional. One hundred thirty thousand dollars is not a professional salary. I'm sorry, for the Valley or anything else, and particularly among mayors. And I think it's, it's appropriate. We've underpaid our mayors 
consistently for that same reason that I described. It's a it's politically it's a third rail. Well, it's a politically tough one, particularly when two things are going to be conflated that shouldn't be. One is the mayor's salary, and the other is that Northampton, within the next couple of years, is going to have to approve, certainly is going to vote on an override, and people say, what are we, we're spending all that money on the mayor. It's a rounding error at most, given the size of the budget, yeah. I mean, which is uh, – Fifty, sixty million dollars. I mean, it's the oh, oh, it's much more than that. Much more than yes, that. Now. Yeah. So, okay, what's the budget? It's, uh, it's over a hundred million, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's closer to hundred million. Mm-hmm. I haven't been paying that close attention. I'm not okay. that good a citizen. Well, we'll take a quick look at yeah. the budget. Is you're right. It's much more than that. I'm, yeah. I'm dating myself back in the fifty, yeah. sixty million dollar era. That's, that's I, when I was. On but this. but people are going to say, well, why are we giving the mayor a raise when, when we have to raise our own taxes? That doesn't make sense. Those two will be conflated, even though they really have virtually nothing to do with each other. You're absolutely right, and you will always hear those arguments. They are they are permanently embedded. Um, we, uh, you know, people consider tax theft as opposed to uh, a membership fee, if you want. Uh, they they and and. And that conflation is an easy kind of Facebook argument, and that in the end it, it, it really holds no water if you challenge it or even think about it more more thoughtfully. But that's not the way we usually go. Being thoughtful and having discussions like that are kind of boring. It's not. It's better to grouse about it. Let me circle back for just a second because Jess Tyler just pointed out that the uh, mayor's budget is one hundred thirty two point three million dollars. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, so, that's so a large budget. Right. Yeah, and a little more than fifty. Sorry, I was I was only only I was only I was half right. <laughs> yeah, by fi- almost by, by almost <laughs> half right. By fifties and sixties, you were talking about when you were raised. Is what you were talking <laughs> about. Um, so we no longer have the sort of boon that the additional revenue that came from uh, cannabis sales. Right. That's right. Initially provided, which was millions of dollars, a few yeah. million dollars. Yep. To Northampton, the ARPA funds, they're yep. not going to keep flowing. So I think Northampton is going to be confronted with a dose of reality in the really near future, right? Oh, that was pretty much expected on some level. I have to, you know, David Narkowitz, when he was mayor, and then consequently, and, and subsequently, uh, Gina Luishera, knew that marijuana was basically a short-lived revenue boost and bump. And then eventually everyone was going to catch on, and then eventually it was going to move over to meh and, you know, so that's where we're moving to now. The shakeout's occurring. We're losing some shops, and uh, you can buy weed anywhere in the Northeast now. So yeah, and Holyoke just lost its grow facility. Yeah, a large yeah. industrial uh, concern in Holyoke. And that was more related to uh, an industrial accident that resulted in a death, and then the subsequent uh, fines and and I think yeah, it's workplace safety and, and yeah. the in the economy, of course. And Again, I think that company is actually leaving Massachusetts. Yeah, they're leaving the whole state, along with Smith and, Smith and Wesson. So they would see people packing <laughs> up and leaving the state. So that money um, was never actually sunk into long-term projects or, or salaries, for that matter. That's the other thing, that you don't put it into salaries. If you promise people a pay raise and suddenly the marijuana money stops coming, it's not how it works. So that's what the taxes pay for is – we have the people in the orange shirts, the DPW, the blue shirts, the police, the red shirts, the fire department, and the gray shirts, the the city workers, right? Well, white shirts, I guess. I don't know what they're called now anyway. But in the fact is, is that that is a cohort that is critical to the function of any city and is much ignored and much maligned frequently. 
And that, again, a difficult group in order to accommodate them to get a community to subsidize paying for those individuals. Because people, you know, they say there's too much fat, which is something you frequently hear. There's too much fat. Although when one forced to identify it, they usually go after, say, administrators who write grants in the schools, or they go after vice principals who help ma manage those schools. Um, and those are librarians and libraries and things like that. And consequently, you lose the value that's being invested, and the value is there. I mean, Northampton, and when I use schools as an example, Northampton schools are excellent as a result. Um, there, there are benefits to that, I think. <laughs> so it's hard to argue that there are benefits to that. We are speaking with Bill Dwight. Uh, I always love, I just love listening to you, Bill. You're just uh, a great observer. Okay, Bill. <laughs> There's one in every crowd. Let's not go too far. We're talking about Bill Dwight, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and as I compliment him, and Bill Newman throws tomatoes. We'll be right back. Thank you. And we are back with former city council of Northampton president, Bill Dwight. Bill, you, um, you have one foot here in the urban Northampton. You have another foot in Holly without even uh, the flowing toilets. That's correct. <laughs> What's the deal with you? Well, oh, flowing toilets? Is that, <laughs> is that like a flush toilet? It's, it's very much like a flush toilet. <laughs> Only flowing. But, 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 but in the hill towns, because they're so aesthetic, it's a flowing toilet? No, it's flowing because they're... Because <laughs> the handle, the handle's right. not working. There's no septic okay. tank, and it just yeah, it goes where it wants. It follows the <laughs> low. This is the part ends. where we remind listeners that this is free, and we're not going to ask that's, for a contribution. That's right. Be, <laughs> remember what you paid for this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I first started going to Holly. Um, we got land. There's no cell service, no Wi-Fi, and I would go there instead of randomly yelling and screaming at people in Northampton when I was on the city council, because there were periods when frustration would mount. And and it was better than doing drugs, ultimately, which was good, because I've tried drugs, and it, it wasn't <laughs> quite, it wasn't as satisfying, and and didn't induce as much peace. Like you said earlier in the program, the, the, the boost is now over. The boost is over, yeah, it's over. So I, I, I um, Holly, and that has a town government structure, which... Um, once upon a time, not long ago, they played fast and loose with. They would meet in one of the members' house, uh, which actually kind of preempts uh, public participation. And they, uh, it, it was old school Yankee Village type of stuff. And now they're, they're much more um, in line with what the state requires for at least sunshine laws and uh, open meeting laws. So, and. But it's the lifestyle that attracts you, not the not the governance of a Absolutely. Holly. No, 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 yeah. And my, that's my question is, you know, I understand you want to get away from the tumult of back the, then of being president of city council. But, um, you know, it's a it's a quiet existence there in Holly. I'm a neighbor of Holly's, and I think how many, there's like 350 people or something uh, like If that. that, yeah. And it, change, it fluctuates pretty quickly depending, you know, on... Who dies and who gets born? But there's so it's not like a lot you of and the insects and the flora and yeah, no, there's ticks. The flora, the fauna, and the flowing toilets. <laughs> the flowing toilet. <laughs> yeah, there's a postcard. <laughs> so, so, Bill, go go back to uh, the question of uh, 
service on a city council, service as a mayor, service on the board, if you would. Sure. I'd like to know if, for you, whether that really was uh, nonstop, every day, every moment, out in public, people are always talking to you, never alone, or whether people do kind of leave you alone given and say, <laughs> I, I don't need to bother this person at this moment. Oh, no, no. Well, that never happened. I mean, for instance, um, we developed over time, my wife and I, I would was not allowed to go into stores because... Well, as you know, which is why you probably have me on the air, if someone talks to me, I will talk until they have to leave. <laughs> and, and so, so consequently, I, I, you know, I wasn't allowed to go into stores. I would go for a loaf of bread and come back a day and a half later and without the bread and <laughs> stuff. And they, but there were, the, I mean, the thing they always said was the plus side of, of, of this level of municipal governance is the, the ground level where, I trim my hedges, someone comes and yells at me about potholes. And that's fine. That was perfect, actually. It wasn't 24-7. And, and, you know, incidentally, I should point out that if you run for office, it, there's no requirement for how many hours you're supposed to invest in that project. So if you want to be a real mook and run for office and never show up after that until the next election, you could do that. And in that case, collect your stipend. Your <laughs> but um, And the same is true with mayor. You can be as detached or as involved as you think suits you. For me, it was, you know, when I first did this, I was working in a video store. So it was hard to avoid people, but that was where I did my office hours, much to my employer's. Uh, yeah, I remember stopping in there. Yeah, <laughs> it, happened. it happened a lot. It was great. It was perfect for me. It really was perfect. And it was. And, and then the advent of the internet, of course, everyone's got office hours, I suppose, on some level. But uh, And then COVID and Zoom meeting type stuff threw everything else into a different kind of uh, realm. And, and I think at that point, there were a lot of challenges for counselors, uh, particularly during, the, uh, during that time, because that required a lot of opportunity to get yelled at and insulted, so... And that, and that does that does affect you. It does. It has to. Yeah, you can't. You can't. I mean, there it is. I mean, but that, if you sign up for the job, that's part of it. Well, we're going to have to have you back, and I always love that you agree to come back because uh, I really wanted to talk to you about Holly and about what you what you find out there. Okay. Because it's uh, besides ticks and flowing besides toilets. Besides ticks. <laughs> okay. I'm there never are... going to live down the flowing toilet. <laughs> <laughs> it's I'll okay. write you. I'll write you a poem. <laughs> and on your way out here, Bill, today I'm going to jiggle the handle for you. Okay? <laughs> Thank you so much. You're, well, you're welcome. Well, and this is, uh, it's time for me to shut up. So it's time for Talk the Talk to be over. Thank you so much for joining us today. Bill Dwight, always a pleasure. Everybody else, keep talking the talk and make sure you walk the walk.